The following sermon was preached at Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. It is so good to see all of you here today as we consider the important yet often neglected subject of biblical anthropology. And any look at what the Bible says about man must begin with the truth that of all the creatures God made, only one creature, only man, is said to be made in the image of of God. Imago Dei, which is the Latin phrase meaning image of God. And we read this in Genesis 1 verses 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. Now, what does that mean? I'm going to offer a very simple and very general definition to begin with, then get a little more detailed as we move along, and then finally look at some very clear and specific implications and applications of this great truth. And let me say at the outset, I'm very much indebted to some material from Wayne Grudem for a lot of what I am going to share with you uh, this morning. Now, very simply, the fact that man is in the image of God means that man is like God and represents God. Really, that's all the scripture says. It doesn't offer any explanation beyond that. Not specifically, not explicitly. The fact that man is in the image of God means that man is like God and represents God. When God says, let us make man in our image, After our likeness, the meaning is that God plans to make a creature similar to himself. Both the Hebrew word for image and the Hebrew word for likeness refers to something that is similar, but not identical to the thing it represents or is an image of. The word image can be used of something that represents something else. And it's interesting that theologians have spent a great deal of time and energy attempting to specify one characteristic of man, or at the most a few characteristics of man, in which the image of God is primarily seen. For example, some have said that the image of God consists primarily in man's intellectual ability. Others say it's in his power to make moral decisions. Others have said that the image of God referred to man's original moral purity, or his creation as male and female, or his dominion over the earth. 
The fact is, though, that Scripture never defines or explains the image of God in this way. In fact, as I said, Scripture really doesn't explain it at all. Not explicitly, at least. Again, the Hebrew words for image and likeness simply informed the original readers of Genesis that man was like God and would in many ways represent God. Not perfectly. God is infinite. We're finite. God is invisible. God is spirit. Uh, We are physical. We are material. Uh, But in some way, we are told that we would be like God and would in many ways represent God. And this is why we do not find anywhere in Scripture something like this. The fact that man is in the image of God means that man is like God in the following ways. Intellectual ability, moral purity, spiritual nature, dominion of the earth, ability to make ethical choices, and so on. No list like that could ever really do justice to this great truth. Yes, these are some of the ways man is like God, but certainly not all of the ways. You see, again, the text only needs to say what it does. It only needs to affirm that man is like God. And the rest of Scripture fills in more details to explain this. And what I mean by that is that as we read the rest of Scripture, we realize that a full understanding of man's likeness to God would require a full understanding of who God is in his being and in his actions, and a full understanding of who man is and what he does. So the more we know about God and man, the more similarities we will recognize and the more fully we will understand what Scripture means when it says that man is in the image of God. That expression refers to every way in which man is like God. Now, does this mean that it's not helpful to list some of the ways in which we do know and understand that man is like God? Of course not. And we will do just that in a little while, and we will look at some specific aspects of our likeness to God. But first, let's talk about what happened in the fall to the image of God in man. Can man still be thought to be like God after he sinned? And I think that question is answered quite clearly in Genesis 9, verse 6, where, Noah, where God gives Noah the authority to establish the death penalty for murder among human beings. This is just after the flood, and God says in Genesis 9, verse 6, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man his blood shall be shed. For God made man in his own image. We see here that even though men are sinful now, there is still enough likeness to God remaining in them that to murder another person is to attack the part of creation that most resembles God. And it is, in fact, an attack on God himself. Man is still in God's image, even after the fall. And we see this in the New Testament as well, in James 3. Verses 8 and 9, where we read, No human being can tame the tongue, 
It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, with the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Here we see that that people, all people, all men generally, not just believers, are made in the image of God. Now, of course, since man has sinned, he certainly he is certainly not as fully like God as he was before. His moral purity has been lost, and his sinful character certainly does not reflect God's holiness. His intellect is corrupted by falsehood. His speech no longer continually glorifies God. His relationships are often ruled by selfishness rather than love. And we could go on and on. The point is that though man is, the point though is that man, despite having sinned, is still in the image of God. Um, now, in every aspect of life, some parts of that image have been distorted as a result of the fall. But we are still in God's image. We are still like God and represent God. But the image of God in us is distorted. Meaning we are less fully like God than we were before the entrance of sin. Now, this means that it is important that we understand the full meaning of the image of God. Not simply from observation of human beings as they currently exist. But from the biblical indications of the nature of Adam and Eve when God created them, and when all that God had made was very good. The true nature of man in the image of God was also seen, of course, in the earthly life of Jesus Christ. And the full measure of the excellence of our humanity will not be seen again in life on earth until Christ returns. And we have obtained all the benefits of the salvation that he has earned for us. Now... Despite that, it is encouraging to see in the New Testament that our redemption in Christ means that we can, even in this life, progressively grow into more and more likeness to God. For example, Paul says in Colossians 3 verse 10, that as Christians we have a new nature that is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. That's happening now as Christians. As we gain in true understanding of God, his word, and his world, we begin to think more and more of the thoughts that God himself thinks. And in this way, we are renewed in knowledge. We become more like God in our thinking. And since this is a description of the ordinary course of the Christian life, Paul can also say in 2 Corinthians 3.18 that we are being changed into his likeness. His image, literally from one degree of glory to another. Throughout this life, as we grow in Christian maturity, we grow in greater likeness to God. More particularly, we grow in likeness to Christ in our lives and in our character. In fact, the goal for which God has redeemed us is that we might be conformed to the image of his Son, Romans eight twenty nine, and be exactly like Christ in our moral character. This is the purpose for which the all things of Romans 8.28 are working together. Every trial and every blessing in this life is ordained by God to help us to become more like Christ. 
in our conduct and our character. And the amazing promise of the New Testament is that just as we have been like Adam, subject to death and sin, we shall also be like Christ, morally pure, never subject to death again. 1 Corinthians 15.49 says, Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Now this is great news, church. This is great news. The full measure of our creation in the image of God is not seen in the life of Adam who sinned, and it is not seen in our lives now, for we are imperfect. Rather, the New Testament emphasizes that God's purpose in creating man in his image was completely realized in the person of Jesus Christ. He himself is the image of God. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4 tells us. He is the image of the invisible God. Colossians 3.15 uh, uh, declares. In Jesus, we see human likeness to God as it was intended to be. And it should cause us to rejoice that God has predestined us to be conformed to the image of his Son. When he appears, 1 John 3, verse 2 says, we shall be like him. We shall be like him. Now, let me mention briefly some specific aspects of our likeness to God. Again, it's difficult, if not impossible, to define all the ways in which we are like God. But we are able to recognize several aspects of our existence that show us to be more like God than all the rest of creation. First of all, there are moral aspects. Moral aspects. We are creatures who are morally accountable before God for our actions with an inner sense of right and wrong that sets us apart from animals, for example who have no innate sense of morality or justice, but simply respond from fear of punishment or hope of reward. When we act according to God's moral standards, our likeness to God is reflected in behavior that is holy and righteous before him. And by contrast, our unlikeness to God is reflected whenever we sin. Then there are spiritual aspects of our likeness to God. We have not only physical bodies, but also immaterial spirits, meaning we have a spiritual life that enables us to relate to God as persons and to pray and to praise him, to hear him speaking his words to us through his word. Connected to this spiritual life is the fact that we have immortality, meaning we will not cease to exist but live forever. Then there are mental aspects. We have the ability to reason and think logically and, and to learn, and this sets us apart, again, from the animal world. Now, yes, animals sometimes exhibit amazing behavior in you know, solving mazes or working out problems in the physical world. But they certainly do not engage in abstract reasoning. As one commentator remarked, quote, There is no such thing as the history of canine philosophy. Nor have any animals since creation developed at all in their understanding of ethical problems or use of philosophical comments, concepts. He goes on to say, no group of chimpanzees will ever sit around a table arguing about the doctrine of the Trinity 
or the relative merits of Calvinism and Arminianism. Similarly, our use of complex abstract language sets us apart from the animals. Our likeness to God is also seen in our human creativity in such areas as art and music and literature and in scientific and technological inventiveness. Then there are relational aspects. In addition to our unique ability to relate to God that I already mentioned, there are other relational aspects of being in God's image. Uh, Although animals no doubt have some sense of community with each other, There is a depth of interpersonal harmony experienced in human marriage, for example, and in a human family when it functions according to God's principles, and in a church when a community of believers is walking in fellowship with the Lord and with each other. That is much greater than the harmony experienced by any animals. Man is like God also in his relationship to the rest of creation. Specifically, man has been given the right to rule over creation. And when Christ returns, we'll even be given authority to sit in judgment over angels. All of these are aspects of our likeness to God. There are physical aspects, even. There's a sense in which our human bodies are also a part of what it means to be made in the image of God. Now, certainly we should not think that our physical bodies imply that God himself has a body. For we know that God is spirit, according to John 4, verse 24. But even though our physical bodies should in no way be taken to imply that God has a physical body, there are still some ways in which our bodies reflect something of God's own nature and therefore constitute part of what it means to be created in the image of God. For example, our physical bodies give us the ability to see with our eyes. This is a God-like quality because God himself sees And he sees far more than we will ever see, although he does not do it with physical eyes like we have. Our ears give us the ability to hear. This is a godlike quality, a godlike ability, even though God does not have physical ears. Our mouths give us the ability to speak, reflecting the fact that God is a God who speaks. Our sense of taste and touch and smell give us the ability to understand and enjoy God's creation, reflecting the fact that God himself understands and enjoys his creation. Though, again, in a far greater sense than we do. I mean, we could go on and on with all of these, but these are just some of the more obvious and clear aspects of our likeness to God. But it is in no way an exhaustive list. Now, what are the implications of all this? And how should we apply this glorious reality to our lives as Christians? First of all, it would be good for us to reflect on our likeness to God more often, far more often than we do. I said before, this is a neglected subject in the church. And I believe it is a neglected subject in the thought life and the prayer life of most individual Christians. It will probably amaze us, at least it should amaze us, to realize that when the creator of the, you think about this, when the creator of the universe wanted to create something in his image, something more like himself than all the rest of creation, he made us. He made us. Think about that. He made us. 
this realization will give a profound sense of dignity and significance as we reflect on the excellence of all the rest of God's creation. I mean, think about it, the starry universe, the abundant earth, the world of plants and animals, even the, the angelic realms. I mean, these are all remarkable, magnificent even. But we are more like our creator than any of these things. We are the culmination of God's infinitely wise and skillful work of creation. And even though sin has greatly marred that likeness, we nonetheless, even now, reflect much of it and, and, and shall reflect even more of it as we grow in likeness to Christ. Secondly, realizing that we have an ability to grow, to become more like God throughout our lives. Our moral sense can be more highly developed through the study of Scripture and prayer. Our moral behavior can reflect more and more the holiness of God. Our spiritual life can be deepened and enriched. Our use of reason and language can become more accurate and truthful and more honoring to God. Our ability to rule over creation can be extended by faithful use of the gifts God has given us. Our creativity can be employed in ways that are more and more pleasing to God. Our interpersonal harmony in our families and in the church can reflect more and more the unity that exists among the Trinity. And again, I could go on and on. We ought to be consciously seeking, consciously seeking as the pattern and goal of our lives to grow into greater likeness to God in all these areas. And even in that, we demonstrate an ability that sets us apart from the rest of creation. Thirdly, and perhaps most importantly, the truth that man has been created in the image of God has tremendous implications for how we view and treat others especially those most unlike ourselves. Remember, as I said earlier, even fallen sinful man has the status of being in God's image. Every single human being, no matter how much the image of God is marred by sin, still has the status of being in God's image and therefore must be treated with the dignity and the respect that is due to God's image bearer. This means that people of every race deserve equal dignity and rights. It means that elderly people, those seriously ill, the mentally retarded, and children not yet born deserve full protection and honor as human beings made in the image of God. When we deny our unique status as God's only image bearers, we depreciate the value of human life, and we end up seeing humans as merely a higher form of animal, as the evolutionists do. And then we begin to treat others as such. Listen, I said before that it is difficult to define exhaustively and specifically what it means that man has been created in the image of God. But as far as the application of this truth goes, God's word is very clear and very specific. 
And the Bible applies this truth most clearly and most specifically to how we view and how we treat other people. Let's return to two verses that I read earlier. First of all, Genesis 9, verse 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And then James 3, verse 9, with it, with the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. There are two harmful actions here toward other people that are forbidden based on the fact that we are created in the image of God. One is murder. And this would also include any hateful and sinful violence toward another person. And the other is cursing them. And considering the context, uh, I don't think it's an exegetical leap to conclude that James has in mind not only any kind of strong denunciation, but also any type of harsh or unkind speech intended to hurt or humiliate another person. Now, this is sobering. This is sobering. Not only am I not to murder another person because he is created in the image of God, but I'm also not to curse him or humiliate him for the very same reason. And yet those of us who wouldn't think of murder will all too often let harsh and hurtful words roll off our tongue with hardly a second thought. And when we do this, we sin because we have violated the image of God in the other person. Now, from these two prohibitions against murder and harsh language, we can derive a broad spiritual principle that applies to all interpersonal relationships. And that principle is simply this. We are to treat other people with dignity and respect based on the fact that they are created in the image of God. In fact, Scripture seems to suggest that God regards our treatment of fellow human beings as treatment of him. For example, Proverbs 19.17 says, Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. And Jesus said that our works at the last day will be based to some extent on this principle. Matthew 25, verse 40, And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. You know, we usually associate the word integrity with such traits as honesty and morally correct behavior. But integrity also includes the way we view and treat other people. And I'm sure most of us have known people who are honest and upright in their moral behavior, but who are proud and harsh in their attitudes and treatments of others. I've known people like that. In fact, I see, I see somebody like that every day when I look in the mirror. And yet every person, regardless of gender or ethnic origin or economic or social status or political affiliation, is to be treated with dignity and respect because he or she was created in the image of God. And to fail in this area is to compromise our integrity. And again, this has all kinds of implications 
As I've already suggested, our speech to or about other people is to be governed by this principle of treating others with dignity and respect. Paul wrote in Ephesians 4, verse 29, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Corrupting speech is any speech that tends to tear down another person either the one we are speaking to or even the one we are speaking about. This is one area of relationships where we, who try to be circumspect in other areas of life, can grievously fail. It is so easy to speak disparagingly of others with hardly a second thought or qualm of conscience. And yet that person is created in the image of God. This is especially true when it comes to those we disagree with, either doctrinally. I mean, it's terrible when we do this, when we're arguing over the truth of God's word, is it not? Those we disagree with doctrinally or politically, especially politically where emotions run very high. I personally have struggled mightily in this area over the years when it comes to politics, especially toward those on the left whose policies and behavior are demonstrably destructive and at times even evil. I have said the harshest and the most cruel things about them and at times even to them face-to-face to the point of even, and I... I I am not exaggerating here, to the point of even wishing them dead without even the slightest qualm of conscience, as I said before, viewing them as somehow subhuman and not even worthy of existence. I have hated family members, close family members, who have disagreed with me. I have been willing to sever relationships over political disagreements. It hasn't come to that in our family, but I've been willing. I've, been, I've told my wife well, <laughs> uh, regarding certain of her close family members that I would cut off the relationship with them tomorrow because of their political beliefs. Uh, but I never have. After Obamacare, was forced upon the American people. I even went so far, and I, I, I kid you not, as to hope that a particular, I'm thinking of her right now, close family member who had ignorantly supported this very, th- this thing, enthousi- she supported this very enthusiastically. I hoped, and I articulated this, not to her, but again, to my wife and others, that she would someday get a terrible disease and then be denied care under this very program that she thought was so great. I didn't pray for that to happen, thank God. I look back, I could have. I could have prayed for that to happen. That's how worked up I was about it. But thank God I didn't. Uh, But I wanted it to happen. I really did. Now, needless to say, this is less than a Christian mindset and less than Christian behavior thinking and behavior that we should all be ashamed of, especially in light of the truth 
that we are talking about this morning. And this extends to other people as well, the homeless, the homosexuals, the so-called transgendered and transsexuals. Um, It's so easy to be bothered by these people and to treat them as somehow less than human. And yet all of these people are created in the image of God and thus deserve dignity and respect that we usually reserve for people like ourselves. Now, that does not mean we accept their behavior. That does not mean we do not seek to reason with them and to persuade them of the truth or even oppose them politically when they try to force their agenda on the rest of us. But again, even in our opposition to them, we are to treat them with dignity and respect as people created in the image of God, just like us. Amen? Just like us. However, we need to do more than merely show dignity and respect. In the days of Isaiah, God severely rebuked Israel for their indifference to the plight of the needy. God's words were, Is not this the fast that I chose to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him? That's Isaiah 58, 6 and 7. Now, this brief message here today is not the place to develop what that might look like for each of us now. But suffice it to say that every every believer ought to be involved in some ministry to the needy, whether it is a direct, you know, hands-on ministry or the generous supportive ministries involved in such work. We can come up with a million excuses as to why we can't or don't need to do this. And none of them would carry any weight with God. Protection of life is another application of the truth that every individual is created in the image of God. In this area, we naturally think first of, you know, protection of the unborn. And while our legal system greatly hampers our efforts to protect them, there are positive actions we can take. Uh, one is to support personally and financially the pregnancies, pregnancy centers which minister to women with unwanted pregnancies. Another is to support those who are working to change the legal climate, either through legislation or court decisions. Uh, that's not to say that the fight for the right to life of the unborn is primarily a political issue. It's not. It's a spiritual issue. It's a moral issue, but um, that battle is often fought culturally in the courts and in the political realm. And we can and we should be involved in that. Since the disastrous Roe versus Wade Supreme Court decision more than 40 years ago, the protection of the unborn has become a major part of the growing political and cultural divide in our country. And in the heat of the rhetoric over this issue, it is easy to lose sight of the basis of our pro-life convictions. Namely, each of those unborn babies is created in the image of God. Protection of the unborn, then, is much more than a political issue to be fought over at the ballot box or in the courtroom. As I said, it is first and foremost a spiritual battle, one that also needs to be fought 
at the throne of grace through prayer. Amen? And through preaching the truth of God's word. At the other end of the spectrum is the increasing threat of euthanasia and assisted suicide of the elderly and seriously disabled. Uh, In addition, there is the large number of elderly who languish in nursing homes with little or no attention from their families. Many of them have greatly impaired mental faculties, which make it difficult to relate to them. But all of these folks, too, they need to be treated with dignity and respect, regardless of how difficult and uncomfortable that may be at times. There are well over 6 billion people populating the world today. Through our communications technology, we have become virtual neighbors to most of them. So how do we respond when we read in our newspapers or see on our television screens reports of devastating earthquakes or hurricanes that have killed or left homeless hundreds of thousands of people? Is it merely just more news about our troubled planet, or do we see each of those people as being created in the image of God, and because of that, worthy of dignity and respect and of our compassion and aid. And then there is the growing immigration crisis in our country. Now, this is a very complex issue with many different biblical principles that need uh, to be brought to bear upon it. But the bottom line is that immigrants, especially those fleeing oppression and danger or even economic devastation, whose very lives are in danger if they don't flee, whether they are attempting to come here legally or not, are people made in the image of God. They are God's image bearers and must be treated accordingly. Now, again, how that looks and what that involves, um, we we won't get into that this morning. Uh, But the principle uh, is the same nonetheless. Now, I'll close with this. None of us live on a social island. We interact every day with people of all different backgrounds, races, and beliefs, either directly or indirectly. And whatever the circumstances and nature of that interaction is, let us seek to treat all people with dignity and respect, with kindness and love recognizing that every human being has been created in the image of God. As Paul wrote in Galatians 6.10, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith.